0: to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you, and enjoy. Wowzer. That was good, huh? I told you. Man, y'all should have been here a couple Sunday nights ago. It's fantastic. Um... Guys, girls, y'all, I mean, y'all have a set of pipes, doggone, uh, way to go, uh, and, and what I think is so beautiful about what they did is each of their voices, I think, is incredibly amazing, but together, together the sound is just incredible. Dr. Haker, thank you so much for being here, uh, and her leadership um, has just been incredible, and so we're grateful for you, and I know y'all are too, um, and so it, it's just a great, great day. Uh, let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 36, Psalm 36 if you're not already there, and, and today um, you said we've, we've been in the book of Luke for the past nine generations, so where are we now? Uh, we're wandering in the wilderness, okay? What I mean by that is um, on in the first weekend in June we'll start the book of Exodus, and so I needed some time to prepare for the book of Exodus, and I'm, I'm so excited about preaching through uh, the book of Exodus, but... Um, in the meantime, we're just going to take some time to go slowly through the book of, or, or through Psalm chapter 36, not the book of Psalms, don't be afraid, um, through, through Psalm 36 and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at just a few verses this morning and then we'll come to another set of verses next weekend, uh, the 29th we'll look at uh, the final uh, set of verses and we'll just kind of bring this together and uh, take some time to, to see our hearts. Um, as we dive into Psalm 36, you're going to say, wow, this, is, this sounds tough. Uh, this, this passage, it's not very comforting. Um, but here's what I want to encourage you to see this morning, uh, is that far, so, so much does God desire for His people to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. Uh, all of our life, if you want to sum up the Christian life, the Christian life could be summed up in, how am I being made more like Jesus? How is my life um, reflecting Jesus in what I think, and what I say, and what I do, and how I speak to people, and how I treat folks? And so I just want to encourage you this morning that that's the goal of the message. The goal of the message is, how do I, as a follower of Jesus, become like Jesus, or maybe you're out there and you go, I'm not about that whole Jesus thing, and so I want you to hear that this message is for you too. And maybe you're saying, I don't know where I fall. I don't know where I fall. And this passage, the the first four verses mainly, will help us understand how do we know where we fall? Are we followers of Jesus? Have we been saved? Well, here are some fruits of that salvation. And so that's what I want to look at today by His grace. Okay, verse 1 says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes transgression speaks de, or speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, commentators kind of disagree on something, and I'm not sure how to view it, but I don't think it really matters ultimately. And so some commentators will say that what transgression is saying is there is no fear of God. So transgression is the one who's speaking, and it's speaking way down deep in the wicked person's heart. There's no fear of God. So that's one way to view it. Uh, also another way to view it is to say transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart and there is no fear of God before his eyes. And so either way we look at it, what I want to focus on for just a moment is that this idea of transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Now, you might be saying, well, Ryan, that of course can't be me. And I just want to say to you, whether you have been redeemed or whether you have not, transgression desires to speak to you deep in your heart. Whether, whether you have been saved by grace, through faith, in trusting Jesus, what Christ has done, not what you and I do, but if you have been or if you have not been, transgression does truly desire to speak to the wicked deep in our heart. And I want you to read this verse with me in James verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 13. And so it's on the screen, and I think this helps us understand what in the world Psalm 36 is saying. James says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So a lot of times people will blame their sin on God, and James says you can't do that. You can't do that. That's, that's just a bad argument, and he explains why. But each person is tempted when he's lured, lured and enticed by his own desire Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so what you see in this passage that really helps us open up Psalm 36, verse 1, is that way down deep in our heart, sin starts with being lured and enticed by our own desires. That desire conceives and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings death and so here in psalm 36 verse 1 we see that it's the heart of a man that's the problem for a man now a lot of people say well i'm a good person well i want you to understand today that uh, god looks way beyond your outer exterior he looks way down deep into the content of your heart and so if you want to know who you are don't ask what you do but ask who you are when no one's looking and that's what God's pointing to in Psalm 36 and in here in James chapter 1. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 13, he kind of proves this idea that we live in, today we live in a follow-your-heart generation. Have you ever heard somebody say that to you? Well, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever said that to you like they've said that to me, but that's really poor advice, and Jeremiah explains why it's poor advice. He says in verse 13 chapter or chapter 13 verse 10, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart. So God through the prophet Jeremiah says, following your heart's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. If you follow your heart, that means you're following your heart over me. See, I want to be your leader. I want to be the one who instructs you and guides you. And if you follow your heart, you will not be walking with me, but you'll stubbornly follow your own desires rather than mine for you. And, and why? Why is it that those people, why is it that we, when we follow our hearts, we're not following God? Jeremiah continues in 17.9, he says the heart, talks about the heart, here's why you don't need to follow it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The King James Version says, and desperately wicked. It says wicked. Who can understand it? So if you want to follow your heart, just understand that the heart that you're following is sick and wicked And it's deceitful above all things. So, I want you to come back to Psalm 36, verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Verse 2 says, For he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Now, I want to focus just on the first phrase for a second, that he flatters himself. He flatters himself. What does it mean to flatter himself? Now, we went to a wedding last night in Atlanta, and there were lots of people. And, and what I noticed is that there were lots of people who were outside of high school age and they were all dressed up like they were going to the prom last night. All of them. And I, I can't tell you if I heard it one time. I heard it a million times. Oh, you look beautiful tonight. Now, here's the problem with being in a, a, a wedding venue of people who were all dressed to the nines. If you say that you look beautiful to one person, you've got to say you look beautiful to everybody. And let's just be honest, there were some people there who did not need to be wearing what they were wearing. They had outlived that prom dress that they had put on, if you know what I'm saying. And so, flattering that person would be, oh, you look so beautiful, and on the inside you're going, right. All right? So the word is kalak, which I'm not a good Hebrew scholar. Greek's a whole other thing, but... Kolak is the Hebrew scholar, or Hebrew word, and it means to deceive, to be smooth, to be slippery. And I thought that was interesting. And then I found Psalm chapter fifty five, verse twenty one, and it really sums up this word for flatter yourself. Okay, and here's how I know that we do this. Okay, his speech, it says in Psalm fifty five twenty one, his speech was smooth as butter. That's kalak, flattering. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So let me sum this up in the Ryan Perry version for us today. What does it mean to flatter us? It means that my words are smooth and slippery and deceitful. And any time I flatter myself, it's when I attempt to use my words to get me where my actions won't take me. It's writing a check with my mouth that my life is not backing up. Are you with me, amen? Amen. And we do this when we flatter ourselves. It's me deceiving myself with my words so that I ignore the reality of my sinful heart. And so the psalmist David is saying, for he flatters himself. He flatters himself. In other words, he's speaking kindly, smooth as butter, soft as oil, words to himself that make him ignore the actual reality going way down deep, going on way down deep inside. Does that make sense? Now, I know that you would never do that to you, but I find myself doing that to me. How do we flatter ourselves? Well, I have a list of them for us. Sometimes we justify our actions. We justify our actions. This is the way we flatter ourselves. We say, hey, listen, I did that. Yeah, of course I did that, but you don't know what happened to me. You don't know what they said to me. I mean, I only did that because I was justified in doing it. They were in the wrong. I was in the right. I didn't do that. And we're justifying our actions rather than owning up to our actions. Second way we do that is we cover up our sins with good deeds. We cover up our sinful heart with good deeds. We cover up the things that people can't see with the things that people can see. I know that we would never be found flattering ourselves in this way but let me, let me just poke. We Baptists are really bad at this. I can poke on Baptists because I'm one of you. We Baptists are really bad at this. For a long time, we have dressed up so well on Sunday mornings, so well. We have looked so good on the outside, but what we didn't realize or nobody else realized is that when I got out of the car, I was steam was blowing out of my ears because i was going off on the children in my car now shut up and get out we're going to church smile hey brother how are you great if i was any better i'd be twins see we're flattering ourselves by covering up our heart our sinful heart with good deeds we do it we I, have you read your Bible? Yeah, I read my Bible. I prayed a lot. I went to church. I went to salt ministries. I did these things, and those are all good things, but let me tell you, none of them cover up the deeds of our heart. None of them do. It's like if I write on a chalkboard my sin. I write all my sin on a chalkboard, and y'all remember chalkboards? I asked, I asked uh, the, the uh, Seneca classical middle schoolers if they had ever used a chalkboard, and none of them had ever used a chalkboard. I felt extremely like a dinosaur in that moment. You never had to clap the things? No, they'd never done that. Poor children, right? Uh, And so it doesn't matter how much of my sin I write on the chalkboard. uh, If I write all of these good deeds, all the good deeds of my life, if I write them on top of my sin, guess what's still on the chalkboard? My sin is. I can, write, I can write good deed after good deed on top of my sin and underneath all of my good deeds is still the chalk of my sin. And we can cover up our sin to flatter ourselves. And, and the psalmist here is saying you're, that you don't do that. Sometimes in, instead of, or we flatter ourselves by, we, we don't reject evil as evil. Um, one, I think it's Isaiah says, you call evil good and, and good evil. Well, culture doesn't say that's evil, so is that, that must not be evil. And I want you to understand that's a slippery slope. That when we let culture define evil, the problem is that culture is ever changing. Have you noticed that? The culture of today is not the culture of yesterday. And guess what? The culture of tomorrow will not be the culture of today. And so if I let culture define evil and good, then I'm in trouble because that's like trying to hit a moving target. It will always, that culture will always be evolving and adapting. And so I can't do that. What see if you just look back a few years ago, you'll say what's okay now was not okay then. And let me tell you, what what's acceptable then isn't necessarily acceptable now. So therefore, instead of saying rejecting rejecting um, evil or not rejecting evil, there's got to be a higher authority, and it's got to be outside of ourselves. You want to know why it's got to be outside of ourselves? because I know me. Do you know you? It's got to be outside of ourselves. If I look in to find authority and truth, I'm in big trouble cuz I'm fallen. I'm broken, I'm flawed. If I look at you to find truth, you're broken and fallen and flawed. I mean, if you didn't know that, I hate to break bad news to you, but you're broken and flawed. So there's got to be a better place to look for truth. There's there's got to be something that's not changing, it's unchanging, it's unswayed by human opinion. And I need to look there for truth rather than in or out. And, and truly one of the great signs of the downfall within the church is when we let the culture define morality to a greater degree than when we let God's Word define morality. See, God's Word is unchanging, God's Word is unswayed by human opinion, and we must, we must, we must for ourselves, for our church, let God's word define morality. See, when authority for right and wrong is taken out of God's hand and placed in the hands of fallen people, we're all in trouble. The, another way that we flatter ourselves is we compare ourselves to others. <laughs> you go, you, you, that, that, that sin is pointed out in your life, and you go, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. I mean, have you seen their life? Gosh, it's fallen apart. It's like a train wreck. I can't take my eyes off of it. And so my life's not as bad as they are. And so I use their life as the standard for morality rather than God's Word as a standard for morality. And so I base my goodness on their life or their failures. And so then I feel good about myself. And that's flattering myself. That's deceiving myself. That's, my words are smooth as butter, yet war is within my body. We compare ourselves, and, and last, we resist the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are given to you and to, I, to, to me to reveal sin, to point to truth, to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, and to resist the Holy Spirit is to flatter ourselves because the Holy Spirit's going to come and tell us things that we don't like to. Have you ever gone to the doctor before and he said, Ryan, your cholesterol's high. Why, doc? Because you're overweight. Can I leave now? it's true, right? But I didn't want to hear it. And so I can resist what this good doctor has told me, or I can accept what that good doctor has told me for my good. And so the Holy Spirit has been given to us, to His church, for our good. And sometimes in that good, He points out things that we really don't like seeing, but it's for our good, for us being more like Jesus. I resist the Holy Spirit. And if you've ever wondered that that scripture uh, that Jesus says, the only sin that's not forgivable is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is that right there. The Holy Spirit was given to convict us of sin and to point us to Jesus, to, to show us all truth, to help us understand what is moral and what is right and what is good. And when I reject those things, I'm rejecting the Spirit. And therefore, if I reject the Spirit over and over and over time and time again, that sin cannot be forgiven so let me come back to our passage he says for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated cannot be found out and hated so what is he flattering himself over now look at verse 3 verse 3 kind of tells us of two categories of sin that david is speaking of the words of his mouth the, the words of the wicked person's mouth are trouble and deceit He has ceased to act wisely and do good. And verse 4, He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that's not good. He does not reject evil. And here's what I want you to see in this passage. What I want you to see in this passage is that God calls these two categories of sin wicked. So here are the two categories. The improper use of our words and our private plots and schemes against other people. Now, Let me ask this question. Does our culture call either one of those two things wicked? The way that we use our words? No. God bless America, you have the right to free speech, right? Well, Ryan, now you're stepping on toes. Do I have the right to say anything that I want just because I have the right to free speech? No. Not as a follower of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, my words... Can be used for building up, or my words can be used for tearing down. There's power in our words. And David says, David says, we need to watch our mouths. Amen. I'll amen that for myself. We need to watch our mouth. Ryan needs to watch his mouth. And it's not that I say a cuss word or I slip up and, you know, I, I bless somebody out when they pull me over, but am I using my my words to build up? Or to tear down, to edify, to strengthen, to love, or to destroy. How am I using my words? And King David here says, The wicked man, the wicked man, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. And then he gives another one. He says, They're plots and schemes. Plots and schemes. So what I say and, and what I think, whether public or private, he says, these are wicked. These are wicked. And so, here in this text, here's what I want. Here's where we're going. You, we are given a picture of the difference between those who are wicked, who are lost, who, who have not experienced the saving work of God, the, the being born again, like the madrigals just sang about. Um, they've not experienced that, versus the people who have been born again, the people who have been saved, the people who have experienced the forgiveness and grace of God. There's a picture of the difference. The wicked are unwilling to find out and hate their sin, but the redeemed do find it out and hate it. So one of the fruits of our salvation is if Jesus has saved us, if he has forgiven us of our sin, then it is in our new nature as we are now new children of God, as we are new creatures, it's in our nature to hate that which God hates. And if I'm going to hate it, I've got to first find it. 1 Peter, Peter says, Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour, and sometimes we got to go on a lion hunt. John Owen, the Puritan preacher, he says it this way, you need to either get busy killing sin or sin will get busy killing you. So which one are you? I mean, we have to ask ourselves that question, am I willing... Am I willing because I've experienced the grace of God, because I've been born again, not not so that, but because of, because I've been forgiven, because God's grace has overwhelmed my sin, because He has died for me and rose for me, because I have been made a brand new person in Jesus, do I hate sin? Do I find it out and do I hate it? Or do I flatter myself with talk smooth as butter do I deceive myself? Are you with me? Does that make sense? That's a hard question, isn't it? But that's exactly what he's asking us. See, finding out our sin is difficult, but it's necessary if we desire to experience the steadfast love of God. The steadfast love of God leads me to find out my sin and hate it, and the, the, the steadfast love of God is experienced by finding out my sin and hating it. Psalm 32 I read in my quiet time this morning. Verses 3-5 through says it like this. I think it's on the screen. For when I kept silent, I'm going to put in parentheses, about my sin. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then he says, but I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I... I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I don't know if if you've noticed this before, but all through the Bible, God is opposed to the proud. And what we hear in this text is that if we're proud, if we have pride in our heart and we flatter ourselves with smooth talk, and, and, and and therefore we don't find our sin and hate it, if that's what we do, that's coming from pride. If you look at verse 11, it says, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. See, pride in our heart will keep Jesus' grace and mercy always out of reach. But can I tell you good news? If you will recognize your sin and recognize your need, Jesus is drawn to your need. Well, doesn't Jesus get tired of me when I sin? No, He's drawn to you in your sin. He came as a Savior of sinners. Isn't that good news? Sometimes I, in my prayers I go, God, I know, I'm sorry. I know I'm just wearing you out here. And that is so far from the heart of Jesus. God is not worn out by our constant coming to Him. That's exactly why He came. And we will only experience the depth of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness to the degree that we are willing to find out the depth of our sin. Can I just tell you, the greater the depth that I find of my own sin, the greater of the depth that I find of God's mercy and grace. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He says, I have a great need for a Savior, and I've got a great Savior for my need. See, pride will keep you from the mercy of God, but humility and owning it will bring you, usher you right into His mercy. He doesn't just say that it can't be found out, but it's got to be hated. Another Puritan, 1600s, Thomas Watson said, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be as sweet. See, pride in my heart, flattering myself, will keep me from experiencing the salvation Jesus offers. Take the Pharisees for a perfect example. But the more bitter our sin is to us, the more I find it out, the more I hate it. The sweeter I find Christ's salvation to be. The sweeter I find His mercies to be that are new every morning. The sweeter I find His grace to be, which is sufficient for my need. The sweeter that I find His sacrifice to be, for His blood covers a multitude of sins. That consequently, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Jesus. And that's good news. I just remember some, one time in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, some, some uh, Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Why does, ask his disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> I mean, shouldn't he be eating with us? We're the religious people, right? Jesus' famous words, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Hear me really clearly. I want you to hear, don't miss this. We don't find out and hate sin so that Jesus will forgive us. Rather, the Christian finds out and hates sin because Jesus has forgiven us. Because if I find out and hate sin so that Jesus will forgive me, my religion is a works-based religion and I save myself but rather as I experience the grace of God, the mercy of Jesus that He pours out to me when I least deserve it, when I experience that, you know what it makes me want to do? I want to find out anything that grieves Him. I want to hate the things that He hates. But I do it because of what He's done. Okay. So, how do I guard myself from becoming this person of verses 1 through 4? How do I guard myself? Let me get really practical with you. Um, Just a few things. I think three things. Number one, a regular, prayerful, spirit-filled reading of God's Word. That was a lot of adjectives, wasn't it? I couldn't leave one off. I tried. I, I just couldn't. Regular. You need to be in the Bible day after day. And if if you get in the Bible day after day, guess what? The Bible's going to get in you eventually. Okay? Prayerful. It is a book, a supernatural book, that was given from God to man. It is God's Word and divine authority. You and I can't understand it without first praying over it. We need to read it with prayer. Help me, Lord. Spirit filled. We need to be spirit filled. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that no one can understand the mind of God without the Spirit of God. Spirit filled. We need to have a regular, prayerful, spirit filled reading of Scripture. And when I read it, I then need to submit myself to its authority. If Jesus, if Jesus died, and if Jesus rose on the third day, then his word is authoritative. If Jesus didn't rise on the third day, it's not. Just ignore it. Go about your business. I don't need to see you next week. No worries. Live. Follow your heart. But if he rose on the dead, and there's an overabundance of evidence that he did, and no evidence that he didn't. If he rose from the dead... The Word of God is divine and authoritative for your life, and we only find life when we submit ourselves to His word. Application. Application. We need application of God's word in our life, and, and when God brings something to our minds, repent. God, I confess that I'm a sinner.. I, and I have sinned against you, and I run back to trust in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died already with this sin in mind, and so I run back to Jesus. Isn't that good news that you can never sin a sin that God has not already accounted for on the cross? So when you sin tomorrow, Jesus already accounted for that on the cross. That's good news. I love that. And so you run back to Jesus, and you say, Father, forgive me, and I run to Jesus knowing that this sin was on his mind when he died for me. So, number one, regular, prayerful, spirit-filled reading of Scripture. Two, become a part of a Bible-believing, gospel-centered community. We need authenticity. We need application of the Word. We need authenticity. Part of community is sitting under God's Word. We do that here in Bible study. We call it Sunday school. We call it Wednesday night Bible study. We sit under the authority of God's Word. We do it right here in preaching. But we're also part of a group who loves you enough to tell you the truth, to point out your sin, but is also gospel-centered. And what I mean by that is it's a safe place to come and be broken. You know the good thing about Seneca Baptist Church is none of us have it all together none of us and if you ever want a list of my flaws come and see me my list is going to be way better than your list I can tell you a thing you, you don't know but here at Seneca Baptist it's okay to not be okay it's okay not to have it all together you don't need to put on good works to come to Seneca Baptist Church you come and you let Jesus save you and when Jesus saves you he'll begin to put the broken pieces back together isn't that good it's okay to be faulty here because we're all a work in progress. We are people that Jesus has saved and he is sanctifying. He is making us more like him. I, I think it's uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. No, 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 it's James chapter 5 that says that here in a, a Bible-believing, gospel-centered community, we confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. All right, the third thing. How do I guard myself? I, the third thing is I surround by surrounding myself with mighty men and women of God. I surround myself with mighty men and women of God. We need accountability. We need application of God's truth. We need authenticity, being able to become and be, be us, be broken. I don't always have to say it's going great. Sometimes it's not going great. Amen? Sometimes life stinks, but God's good. It's okay to say that. I just want to go crawl in a hole, but I trust Jesus so I'm here. Wouldn't that be crazy if you walked up to somebody on Sunday morning? Hey, how are you? Good to see you. I don't want to be here, but this is the place that I need to be. That'd be startling, wouldn't it? We need accountability. Surround myself with mighty men and women of God. So who's asking you hard questions? Who's asking you hard questions? If you can't answer that question quickly, watch out. Who's helping you see blind spots in your life? You have blind spots. No, I don't. That's why they're called blind spots. Some of you will get that in a minute. Okay, so surround yourself with people who can call you out on your blind spots, point out the sin in your life, and you know that they're doing it out of love, not not because they want to tear you down. Now, listen... Not everyone should be given the privilege to call you out on your sin. Not everyone should. So you need to ask, how do I know? Let me, here's a couple questions. As you're looking for your inner circle of people who you give permission to call you out on your sin and point out the blind spots in your life, here are a couple questions to ask. Do I see the fruit of God's grace evident in their life? Do I see God's grace abounding in them? Not, not are they perfect, but do I see the gospel transforming them? Do do I see them surrendered to Christ's authority? Again, not are they perfect, but is there evidence of faithfulness to Jesus in their life? Sometimes the track record of people should immediately disqualify them from being in this circle for you. Let's go back to what David said. What are their words? What's the faithfulness of their words? The track record of their words saying... That will help you understand if negative Nancy wants to be on your inner circle, if complaining Carl, right, want to be a part of your inner circle, and they have a track record of negativism and complaining and grumbling, they probably don't need to be in your inner circle. Man, that was hard, wasn't it? I told Christopher I could get in trouble today. Are they complaining, grumbling, negative, judgmental? Is there a lack of kindness that exudes from their life? Disqualified. Plots and schemes. David was going through really difficult circumstances, and and what was interesting is that there were people in David's life who were using his difficult circumstances as weapons against him to tear him down and to get him out of the throne rather than to build him up and to push him toward God. And so he's talking about plots and schemes. They're weaponizing his failures against him. And if you see people in your life who are weaponizing others' failures as a plot and a scheme, let me tell you, disqualified. Don't let them be on your inner circle. Church, I'm going to talk to the church for a second. This is where I'm about to get in trouble. Isn't it funny, though, that sometimes the loudest or the the squeakiest wheel gets the grease? We let loud, complaining, grumbling people sometimes guide our churches rather than the people that God truly desires to guide our churches. Why? Because they're loud. Their voices are heard. Shame on us. That's why it's so important to choose well and wisely those who serve in leadership positions at Seneca Baptist. In any of God's churches. Because David says, if you want them on your inner circle, make make sure about their words and their plots. We all need men around us and women around us. David had his mighty men. Some were physically mighty. Others, like Nathan, were spiritually mighty. Moses had Aaron and Hur. Paul had Barnabas and Silas and Timothy. Timothy. And if we're going to be successful in finding out and hating sin, we need to allow mighty men and women of God access into our lives, but do it in a careful way. I'm ending, I promise. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, men, be careful who you allow into your inner circle. Make sure that men are those who are speaking into men's lives. Don't invite women into that inner circle where they find out deep details about your life. I want to encourage you to be wise women don't guard your heart do guard your heart guard your heart ladies uh, about who you let speak truth into your life women don't build unhealthy relationships with a person in authority in your life guard your heart men the the wisest way to do this is men with men and women with women too many people are falling we need to guard ourselves well Let me wrap this up and just say, the point is, let me go back to Psalm 32. I think we have it on the screen. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When I flattered myself, I was miserable. But when I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God wants you to be more like Jesus, and one of the ways that he makes us more like Jesus is by uncovering sin in our lives, finding it out, and teaching us and training us to hate it. And I want to be a people. I want us to be a people. I want to be a follower of Jesus that finds it out and hates it and puts a bullet in the head of the sin that's about to kill me. Be busy killing sin or sin will be busy killing you. And in doing so, guess what? We'll experience the sweetness of Christ like we've never before in our life. So as I close, maybe you fit in a couple categories. Number one is you're lost. You don't know Jesus, and you need to trust Jesus today. You've been justifying your sin, covering your sin. You've been flattering yourself. But today, you need to uncover yourself, be exposed, naked, and bare before God. And I promise if you do that, Jesus will come to you in mercy, meet you in your sin, and grant you forgiveness, and you will be free like you've never been free before. Some of us are saved, yet we've hidden sin in our heart. And so if that's you, if you're saved but you're flattering yourself, uncover it before the Lord. Don't, you don't need to do that. I'm not your priest. You don't need to do that to me. You can, you can come and kneel before the altar, or sit right where you are and confess your sin before Him and walk away like a new man or woman. Or maybe you're in the, the place today that, that you're not reading the Bible regularly, that you're not a part of a, or a, a Bible-believing, gospel-centered culture. You're not a part of that. Maybe today you want to join that church. Maybe today you want to say, Pastor Ryan, I need godly men and women around me. Can you mention any that would do that for me? I'd love to help you. Would you stand with me as we respond, as we sing our final closing song, as you respond to the Lord, as as the Lord is leading you, and then as we go. Father God, we love you. And we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the challenge of your word today. That your word never promises that we'd be comfortable, but it promises that we have the ability to be holy because of Jesus. God, Jesus never promised me happiness, but he promised me that I I should become holy. His greatest desire for my life is holiness. And when I become like Jesus, I'll find myself happier than I've ever been. I'll find joy and pleasure like I've never experienced before. Father, make our church like Christ. May sin rise up to the top. May we scrape off the dross. Get rid of that which you have revealed. And may we walk with you in honesty and integrity. Lead our church to respond. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. You respond as the Lord leads you.